0: All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. morning. We are drawing near to our end of the study of Galatians. Today we're going to look at chapter five and how to live a Holy Spirit-filled life. And if you want to start turning there, you can. If you forgot your Bible at home or you ran out and left it sitting on the counter, feel free to raise your hand and David will bring you a copy. There's one, two, two so far. Good job, guys. Thank you. Next week, we're going to wrap up our study in Galatians by studying chapter 6, and we're going to learn about church discipline. That's always a fun one. And how God wants us to handle sin in ourselves and in our church. Uh, The week after that is youth camp. So Pastor Paco was here for the first service, but I think he's left now. He's going to be preaching. Oh, there he is. He's high by Thomas there. Uh, He's going to be preaching. He told told me I stole his sermon topic, so I didn't didn't steal. I teed it up for him, so he's going to knock it out of the park. It's going to be awesome. I think I mixed my sports analogies there, but that's okay. Uh, So we're going to finish with Chapter 6 next week. Pastor Paco is going to preach after that. We're going to be in youth camp. And then when we meet again, God willing, we're going to jump into the Old Testament. So uh, please keep me in your prayers. I haven't decided exactly which book to jump into just yet, uh, but I want to get us back into the Old Testament and taking a look at uh, some of the awesome stuff back there. Today, though, we're going to look at Galatians 5. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 5, we're going to start in verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again that every man who receives circumcision, he is under the obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, that in, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves, for you were called to freedom, brethren. And do not turn your freedom into an opportunity flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not concerned, consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as David prayed in Psalm 119, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Amen. You may see it. Well, we made it to the the last section of Galatians, and I did all that talking and didn't turn there. So let me get there real quick. <laughs> there we go, Galatians. There we go. The last section. So the, the Galatians is broken into three sections. The first section is, is chapters one and two, and that's where we saw Paul defending his apostleship from the Judaizers. They were coming in and saying, "Who's this guy?" Boy, what authority does he say these things? Right, in the second section that we wrapped up last week with chapters three and four, where Paul laid out and proved from the scriptures the doctrine of the justification, the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification being another word for redemption or salvation. We came to understand that justification happens the moment that someone believes in faith on the work of Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and for mine. He was buried in a tomb that he borrowed for three days from a rich man. And on that third day, he was raised to life, having paid the penalty for the sins of all who would believe. And when a person believes in faith that message, they are saved or justified. And if they die a moment later, or even a few moments later, like the thief on the cross who placed his faith in Jesus hours before he died, that person will be saved. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Amen. Dying shortly after justification, however, is not the normal case. More often than not, a person places their faith in Jesus as their Lord and then goes on for several years living. And this is where our third section, the chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, are going to come in here. It's going to outline for a believer how they should live and how they should place, after they place their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you remember in our previous weeks, I've made statements like, we are not our own anymore, we are slaves to Christ. And everything that we think, and that we do, and that we say, should flow from that thought. Everything about us should be pointing to Christ. My parents visited this week, and my mom showed me a Facebook post from a friend that she had, and it said, I want to be so full of Christ that if a mosquito bites me, it flies away singing, there is power in the blood. <laughs> Silly, I know. But Christ should define who and what we are and what we do. And we also need to understand that we will fail. There will be times that we don't look like Christ. Where we fall and we have to dust ourselves off and reorient towards Christ. This is the phase in a believer's life that is called sanctification. This is where the believer is shaped to be more Christ-like. We're aligning our our lives with Christ and preparing for eternity. Mm -hmm. And throughout this phase, most often, after we've failed or not acted like Christ, we are tempted. We're tempted to doubt. We're tempted to doubt if we're even saved or, or justified. There's a saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's first recorded in English in the early 17th century, but it is likely much older. Phrases for the notion of tasting something to test it goes back at least to the 14th century. But back then, no one was talking about that sweet, creamy pudding that we like to eat now. There weren't pudding pops or jello Mm. jello cups or whatever those things are called. Puddings were gutsy, literally. They were essentially sausages. Uh, uh, usually, they were a mixture of minced meat, cereal, spices, often blood, stuffed into intestines or stomachs, and boiled or steamed. In the Middle Ages, this could be very good or very bad, or possibly fatal if the meat was contaminated. But to find out, you had to put it to the proof. This thing is morphed in our time, right? We don't say that as much anymore. We say, the proof is in the pudding. I never heard of it. the proof is in the pudding. Meaning that to understand the true value of something, you have to put it to the test. As Christians, we have a very accurate way to test whether our faith is true. During the sanctification phase of a believer's life, their actions, the way they speak, it begins to be transformed. So the regeneration that took place inside of us starts to shine through. We commonly refer to this as bearing fruit. This is, if you will, the proof. Today we're going to take a quick look at the dangers of false doctrines and false teachers. And then we're going to take a deeper look at the role of the Holy Spirit in our life as a believer. And we're going to end by uh, contrasting two different lists of of things. uh, The deeds of the flesh, or sin, and the fruit of the Spirit. fruit of the Spirit that should be evident in every true believer's life. To begin with, though, we need to look at Paul's first sentence in chapter 5. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Paul, at the end of chapter 4, if you remember, saying, Remember, you're not the children of the bondwoman, you're the children of the free woman. And then he kicks off in verse 1 with the assertion, Christ uh, set us free for freedom's sake. And then he gives us a command. Therefore, Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Now, at first blush, those statements might look like they kind of contradict each other. Like Paul is saying, you're free! Now keep fighting. But the point that Paul is trying to make here is, because Christ has set you free, now you should become what Christ has made you. He's telling us to make visible here on earth, in Brentwood, in the United States, and in the world. Make visible what God has already declared, which is our righteousness through Christ. What this means is, as a slave of Christ, we need to stand firm in our faith and display that we are children of God. We exist in a a double reality, right? On one hand, we're children of God, sealed for eternity with the Holy Spirit. We are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. We are redeemed. We are justified. Uh But, on the other hand, we're still at war with sin. It surrounds us. And its siren call lures us to destruction. Not eternal destruction. Remember, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit for how long? Ever, forever. For all eternity. Forever. But like I said, we are in a war. Remember that little G God of this world. The one that blinds the unbelievers. His, his demons and he seek to drag as many unbelievers to everlasting punishment and hell with them. And they don't just do that, they also want to neutralize believers. And how do they accomplish that? Well, we're pretty good at messing things up on our own end, right? But the enemy likes to use false teachers, right? Satan and his demons have lost the war with the believer, we're sealed. They know where we're going, and we should know where we're going as well. But what they want to do is come in and make you as ineffective as possible, even damaging to the kingdom of Christ. Wolves among sheep, tares among wheat, teaching doctrines of demons. Paul picks up on this in verses 2 through 6, where he outlines the dangers of false doctrines. Picking up in verse 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision... Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under the obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. In verse 2, Paul lists one of four dangers in trusting circumcision for salvation. And we could add uh, any number of things in there. Trusting in the law, trusting in your works, uh, trusting in any system that puts its faith in what we do, not what Christ did for us. He says, Christ will be of no benefit to you. There will be no growth in Christ. The second we take our eyes off the cross, our growth is stunted. And we begin to win. In verse 3, Paul points out the second danger of placing your faith in circumcision. In that, if you keep part of the law, you have to keep the whole law. There's no such thing as as cafeteria law keeping, right? You can't slide in with your tray and take a little bit of that law, skip that law, take a little bit more. No. You have to take the whole buffet. Right? Verse 4 shows us the third danger of believing in circumcision. Paul says that you are severed from Christ. And this is the state of the non-believer. If you haven't put your faith in Christ and you turn to the law for salvation, you remain severed from Christ. Doomed to an eternity of fire that burns but does not consume. And also does not put off light, as hell is known as a place of deep darkness. If you have put your faith in Christ and you turn to the law, you've fallen from grace. Your sanctification is interrupted, and your walk with Christ is impaired. Again, as a believer, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. But, keep in mind, we will be judged for what we do here on earth. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10 tells us, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. According to what he has done, whether it is good or bad. The day of judgment, there's going to be two judgments. The first one, the separation of the sheep and the goats, right? The believers and the unbelievers. And the unbelievers will be cast with Satan and his demons into the fire, fiery pit, hell. And the believers then will go before a different judgment. And God's going to look at our lives and he's going to say, What did you do? With what I gave you here on earth, think of Jesus' uh, parable of the, the five talents, right? The one he gave five, one he gave three, one he gave one. Right? And the five and the three went out and earned more. The one hid it under his mattress or stuck it in the dirt. Right? Said, "I knew you were a harsh master, so I hid it. Here's your coin." Right? And they, they took that coin from him and gave it to the one who had five. Right? He's going to look at what we do. Our works will be tested. And the Bible tells us that there are things that we will receive crowns for. right? And we're going to receive crowns for the things that we do here on earth as a reward. We'll be recompensed. And what do we do with those the second we get them? We turn around and we throw at Jesus' feet. Because every good thing comes from Christ. Amen. Every good work that you do, every good work that I do, comes from Christ. Therefore, if we turn from Christ to the law, our ambition is wrong. We are not seeking to please God. We have become ineffective as workers, and our growth and our relationship with Jesus grinds to a halt. Verse 5 gives us the fourth danger of placing your faith in circumcision, and it's given as a uh, a positive for living a godly life. At the end of verse 5, he says, a godly life will have hope of righteousness. As believers, we have hope. The hope that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. But no other religion can say that. There's the Mormons, right, where they believe that they have to give enough to the temple. They have to uh, do enough. They have to, to go out to enough doors and knock on enough doors. And we see what that system of law does because there's such a thing as the Mormon walk. Has anybody ever heard of the Mormon walk before? It's what they do because they have a a specific amount of hours every week that they have to go out and knock on doors. So the Mormon walk is when they're trying to burn time and they do this in between houses, right? Because they're, they're obligated to be out there, but they don't want to be out there. So they do the Mormon walk. have confessions and Hail Marys and they live in a perpetual state of seeking forgiveness through confessions and penances penances, including last rites a priest has to administer the last rites and if the priest doesn't get there, there are different prayers to administer to um, the the dead body, including dousing the dead body with holy water with the hopes that these works will aid the Catholic believer in getting to heaven I was doing a little research on, on the last rites I just Googled uh, what, are, what are Catholic last rites or whatever. The first three things that popped up were all questions of people of the Catholic faith, faith asking, this person didn't get their last rites. Are they going to have it? Are they going to make it? The Catholic priest said, well, you know, uh, God is sovereign and he works in his own sovereign way. But keep praying for their salvation, even though they're dead. That's not going to work. You pray all you want for dead people. It doesn't work. Death is the end. At, at death, you either go up or you go down. Right? But those, those people and those questions, you can you, you, you hear the, the, the hurt in their voice. They have No hope. No hope never knowing if you've done enough never knowing if the priest had said the right prayer at the right time with the right amount of holy water but we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness from Christ Paul wraps up the dangers of false doctrines in verse 6 by assuring the Galatians that whether you whether or not you're circumcised it doesn't matter it is faith working through love our faith and not from God That is active in love, also from God, leading to holiness. Paul switches from talking about the dangers of false doctrine, and now he's going to move to the character of the false teachers. He says in verse 7, You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? False teachers muddy the waters for believers. They confuse and befuddle the believers from obeying the truth, God's truth. Remember, Satan's goal is to make the believer ineffective, He's lost the war, but what he's trying to do is take you down and make you worthless in the kingdom of God. They want to, he wants to wrap you up in layers of rules and regulations to constrict your ability to be a part of God's plan. This persuasion, he says in verse 8, did not come from him who calls you. False teachers are never from God. God freed us from legalism. False teachers want to put us back into it. And then he says in verse 9, a little leaven uh, leavens the whole lump of dough. Leaven or yeast is used primarily in the bible to speak of sin now we have a few talented bakers in this church i'm not going to name any names but uh, one specifically likes to make sourdough bread and i blame her for this (laughs) and when you make sourdough you have a starter it's a piece from the old loaf of bread right you've got little starter it sits in your refrigerator and bubbles it activates the bread it causes it to rise and have that sourdough flavor So you can see why sin is like the leaven. Just a few tablespoons go into a large loaf of bread. And just like that leaven, just a little bit of sin can get into a believer's life and can work its way into the church. Sin, like leaven, it's sour. It puffs up. It corrupts. And sin, like leaven, is swift-acting. It's thorough. It infects the believer and can completely take over that believer's life or even a whole church. I've been trying to get in touch with uh, our, our sister church uh, pastor, the first family there in Antioch. And uh, we bounced emails back and forth. And finally said, hey, you know, we're doing this thing out, out in front of Planned Parenthood on Friday. If you come by. So I went by and they, they stand up out there and they, they try to catch people as they're going in and they, they pray for them, they, they offer them services like clothing, housing, food if they'll, they'll keep the baby. And then if, if the, the woman does go in and have the abortion, when they come out, they try to talk to them about the forgiveness of Christ. Right? There is no sin that's too big for Christ. Amen. And no matter what you've done, Christ can overcome it. And so I was, I was talking to him out there. And uh, he said he was a member of a local church in Antioch, but he'd come to First Family when the pastor had begun preaching the acceptability of, of homosexual relationships within the church. Not, that, not saying that homosexuals aren't, shouldn't be here. Homosexuals should absolutely be here. This is the best place for them to be. But when you start preaching that it's okay, God, God is not angered by that. That's compromising what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Not what I say. Not what he said. Not what any of you say. What the Bible says. Amen. Right. As a result of his pastor compromising. Came out later that several of his children had chosen the homosexual lifestyle. Church split has since been closed down. Sin corrupts. It's swift. Thorough. It whispers in the ear, did God really say, did he really say that? Paul continues in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. False teachers will be judged for their teaching. Peter Peter tells us of false teachers in in 2 Peter 2. Uh, 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 2, he tells us what's gonna happen to them. Many will follow their sensuality, speaking of the the sensuality of the false teachers. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They will be judged for what they teach. Paul continued, he says, but I, I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? So obviously the Judaizers had come in and said, well, Paul says circumcision is important. He says it's needed for salvation. And Paul is saying, are you nuts? If I said circumcision was good, why would I be persecuted? Because, you see, that's, that's how they could tell back then, right? They could tell. If you were circumcised, you were Jewish. And if Paul had said, you have to get circumcised, then he would have been fine with the Jews. The Jews wouldn't have been bothering him, right? You say, well, how would they know, right? Well, they didn't have McMansions like we do, right? They didn't have four bathrooms in a house. They had one public bath where everybody went to take a bath so they would know. And Paul says, if I was preaching circumcision then the Jews, they wouldn't be bothering me. Why would I? I wouldn't still be getting persecuted. The stumbling block, block of the cross would have been abolished. Right? If I'm saying circumcision is what you need, that's what the Jews are saying, and the stumbling block of the cross, faith in the cross alone, wouldn't even be there. So what would the problem be? I never said that. I never said circumcision was needed. And then he he continues there. He gets a little a little angry. Verse 12. I wish those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. He says if the circumcision party is so adamant that people need to be circumcised to be saved, I wish they'd keep going and I wish they'd castrate themselves. That's what that word mutilate there means. Strong language. But Paul doesn't see their teaching as something to be tolerated. It needs to be cut off and cast away. Having warned the Galatians of the dangers of false doctrine, and the false teacher is preaching it, Paul is now going to give the church some instructions on how they should be living. He says in verse 13, For you are called to freedom, brethren, only well, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our freedom in Christ shouldn't be used as an excuse to act out whatever desire we have. You don't go out and shoplift and say, well, I'm forgiven, it's sealed with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter. Right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't take it as an opportunity for the flesh. Remember, we are slaves of Christ. And knowing that we are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. But what does that mean? Does it mean that we should sacrifice our well-being for others? Sometimes, yes. Does that mean that we should put others' needs and feelings in front of our own? Sometimes, absolutely. Do we give our time and resources to make sure that our brothers and sisters in Christ are cared for? Absolutely. And sometimes sacrificially. I think C.S. Lewis said best in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, You are told to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? When I look into my own mind, I find that I do not love myself by thinking myself a a dear old chap or having affectionate feelings. I do not think that I love myself because I'm particularly good, but just because I am myself and quite apart from my character and the things that I do. I might detest something which I have done. Nevertheless, I do not cease to love myself. In other words, that definite distinction that Christians make between Hating the sin and loving the sinner is one that you've been making in your whole life since you were born. You dislike what you've done, but you don't cease to love yourself. You may even think that you ought to be hanged. You may even think that you should go to the police and turn yourself in to be hanged. Love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be attained. If I love my neighbor like that, verse 15 is a problem. Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Loving my neighbor in in the same way I love myself will allow me to forgive more easily, even when forgiveness is not asked for or appreciated. Loving my neighbor like I love myself will allow me to overlook the faults others might have. You know those things that really just you the wrong way about somebody. If I love that person the way that I am commanded to, I resist the urge to bite and devour them every chance I get. And therefore, I preserve the unity of our church. Amen. Now, you might be saying, gee, Pastor Lance, that sounds great. But also, slightly unrealistic. I mean, this is some serious stuff here, right? How am I supposed to just love people that I can't get along with? Well, first off, this doesn't mean that you need to go find the person in the church that you may have disagreed with in the past and try to make them your best friend. I'm not saying that. I'm actually saying more than that. I'm saying, and more importantly, the Bible is saying, you need to love them. Right? What's that last line that C.S. Lewis says? A steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be. We need to love them, even the ones that we, by worldly standards, should hate. Sounds impossible, right? I mean, how could we love everyone? Take a look at verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 16 highlights the fight that goes on inside of every believer, even the Apostle Paul, the writer of half of the New Testament. If you don't believe me, turn to Romans 7. Turn to Romans 7, uh, starting in verse 18. This is Paul speaking. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, That is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. Paul is saying there's a battle going on inside of every believer that battle to overcome the sin of the world, to overcome our sin. Most people don't come to Christ perfect. In fact, I think I could venture to say nobody comes to Christ perfect. Right? We all have skeletons in our closet. And we all have to deal with those things. And we we all have to, to, to overcome them so that we can love everyone. And how do we do that? Right there. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. We are given a helper, the Holy Spirit, with whom we are sealed when we are justified. The Holy Spirit who will guide us, fill us with love, and enable us to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Holy Spirit, if we walk with will keep us carrying out the desires of the flesh. Or sin is what that means. Which is, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm I'm going to rapid-fire some verses at you here. He's he's co-equal to Jesus and and the Father. Matthew 28, 19, right? The Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's co-equal. He's a pledge of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose, that is our sanctification, is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. He helps us when we're weak and we don't know how to pray. Romans 8, 26-27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He teaches us. John 16:13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what has come. He gives us words to speak when we're ministering to people. Mark 13:11. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. He glorifies Jesus and takes care of Jesus as believers. John 16, 14 through 15. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that are the Father, all things that the Father has are mine. This is believers He's talking about. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And the last thing about the Holy Spirit is he can be quenched. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the Holy Spirit with whom we are to walk. We are to walk with him so that we don't quench that Holy Spirit's power in our life by carrying out the desires of the flesh. And what are the desires of the flesh? These are the sins that we battle daily. The sins that, in, that threaten to interfere with our growth in Christ and with our sanctification. Do you find it difficult to understand the Bible when you read it? Do you feel like God is distant, not really interacting with your life? Do you have trouble dealing with, with other believers in a loving manner? Perhaps you quench the Holy Spirit's work in your life. This is a good time to examine your life For a Holy Spirit quenching sin Or sins That will inhibit your ability to grow in Christ Paul breaks down some sins for us In the next verses He breaks them into three categories Verses 19 through 21 It's definitely not a complete list But it is a representation of common sins. First, sexual sins In, In verse 19 he says Now the deeds of the flesh are evident Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality Then in verse 20 he talks about the sins of man made religion, idolatry, sorcery. He talks about human relation sins, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That last little sentence might hit you. Right? Because you go back and you look and you say, okay, well, I've been immoral. There's times I've been impure. Right? I put things in front of God, so that's idolatry. Sorcery, I don't know. Maybe you played with a Ouija board when you were a kid or something. Enmity, strife, I've been jealous of people. I've had outbursts of anger. I've disputed with people. Maybe I drank, got drunk, carousing. Can I not inherit the kingdom of God now? The key word there is in the Greek is called proso. Proso. And it's that word practice. We get the word practice from the word proso. And I'm, we're going to get into a little bit of a, a grammar here. Proso is a present active participle. It's all Greek to me too, <laughs> right? Present active participle. Present meaning now. Active meaning you're continually doing it. It doesn't stop. Active. Right? This is the negative side of the proof. It indicates a life of sin where you're constantly living in the sin. Are you practicing these sins on a daily and habitual basis? Do you not stand firm against them? Meaning you fight them. You know they're wrong and you fight them. And when you fall, you get up and you take it to the cross and you lay it at Jesus' feet. You ask for forgiveness. We all still sin. Paul says in Romans 7, 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Paul there's talking about the, the Roman way of, of punishing murderers. When they, when they caught a murderer, they would take the body of the one that had been murdered and they tied it to the the body of the murderer, and they tied him down face-to-face, body-to-body, arm-to-arm. And then they just let the body decompose. And I don't have to get too graphic here to tell you, but when that body decomposes, there's going to be things that go into the mouth and the nose of the murderer. And the infections and the sickness that's going to come from that will eventually kill that murderer. It's a slow and gruesome and torturous death. Paul relates our sin nature as that body of death that's on us, always trying to suck us down, always trying to infect us. We should examine our lives and execute without mercy any sin that lurks within it. A true regenerate believer will still sin, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will find it distasteful. An unregenerated person or an unsaved person will have no problem with their sin. It won't bother them. Like any good parent, Paul doesn't just tell the Galatians what not to do, right? He lists out all the sins and says, don't do that! He's going to tell them what to do instead of that, right? And so in verses 22 through 24, he gives us the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Against such things there is no law. But we've seen the list, the list of, of sins. And then we get to this, this beautiful list of the fruit of the Spirit. And when you think about the fruit, right, you think about fruit. There's a house next door that we own, right? And there's a couple trees in there. One of them is a pomegranate tree. That sucker's old. It's old. I don't know how old that thing is. They probably planted it when they built it, like, in the 40s an old, old tree. And we added water to it. We added a drip line over there so it'll, it'll produce fruit. And I looked over the other day, and there's fruit all over that thing. And those pomegranates are good. So if you get a chance, go grab one or two. They're really good. Right? But that's a picture. We're planted. We're rooted in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is working through us. And we're growing. And, and our lives are growing. And we're grow, grow, growing closer to God. And we start to produce leaves. And the next thing you know, whoop, out pops fruit. Peace, whoop, out pops fruit. Love, whoop, out pops fruit. Fruit, patience. There's a danger here. And that danger is you walk into a church and maybe you're a new believer, right? Maybe, maybe you look around and you say, wow, that guy, he's got a lot of fruit. I'm more like the lemon tree next door that's got one little lemonade. You have no idea the masterpiece that God has made out of that person. With all their fruit, you have no idea. I said it before, we all have skeletons in our closet. God takes all of us from a dead state. We were dead, and he regenerates us. Mm -hmm. And as we grow closer to Christ, and as our lives align with Christ, we start showing fruit. And if you don't have all the pomegranates on there, and you've got one little lemon hanging there, don't stop. Because the Holy Spirit will work in you. The Holy Spirit will work to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Gentleness self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus in verse 24 have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25 he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The walk by the Spirit there is, if we live by the Spirit, right, we, we read the Word, we pray, we need to walk by the Spirit too. There's a duality there, right? Christ does all the good things, but we're called to be a part of his plan. We're called not to the recliner, but to the front line, right? We're not called to sit in these nice, comfy, soft chairs every Sunday. And then duck out. Duck out. I did it. Check the box, right? We're called to live a light that shows fruit. Your fruit's going to be different than my fruit. Right? We all, God has blessed us all differently. The Holy Spirit works in us all differently. Some people are pomegranate trees. Some people are lemon trees. Orange trees, apple trees, whatever. But you will have fruit with the Holy Spirit in you when we crucify these idolatries and sorceries and enmities and strife and jealousy, when we crucify those and replace them with love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control, we will be a strong church. We will be strong believers. We will grow. The city of Brentwood will notice us. We will make an impact. We will be a light in the dark. And as we do that, as we, as we grow, remember, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Well, that guy's a lemon tree, and I'm a pomegranate I really want to be a lemon tree. No. No. God has blessed you where you are, with who you are, and how you are. And that Holy Spirit's going to work in you and produce that fruit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you that your Holy Spirit, once we believe in you, once we make that proclamation of faith, once we make Jesus our Lord, we're yours. And every decision that we make, everything that we say, should flow from that Lord. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to work that out in us. Lord, but we know that, that the Holy Spirit can be quenched Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about searing. It talks about burning it in and searing it over with a callus so that we don't feel our sin. Lord, if, if we're here today and if we have something that we've seared over in our conscience, some sin that we refuse to let go, some dirty little sin that we keep in the closet while the rest of the house looks spotless, we pray that you would expose that to us, that you would rip that... That callous from it and make us feel conviction. That we can deal with that sin so that in you we grow, Lord. And we produce fruit and our church grows. We have love, patience, self control. Lord, we love you so much. That's why we come here. We love you. (coughs) So, Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways this week that your spirit will be with us. Lord, that, that we would be protected, that we would be lights in this community. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here today who uh, doesn't have that Holy Spirit, doesn't understand what that Holy Spirit is or, or, or wants it but doesn't have it, Lord, I pray that you would um, convict them, that they would come forward as we sing this last song and we could start them on, on a, a narrow path the path to Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.